Hey everybody, Magnus here. Rockies. Rocky Mountain jeans. You know, I don't know if that means anything to any of you listening to this right now, so if it doesn't, if the idea of me talking about Rocky Mountain uh, blue jeans just doesn't make sense to you, well guys, we have a thing called Google. Fucking use it. Anyway. Look, I don't know if Rockies are still a thing, but way back in the day, they were quite the fashion statement among some of the, shall we say, more country-minded folk at the school at which I used to attend. A quite fetching young lass owned a red pair of Rockies and wore them that fateful day our 8th grade year when she told me that she had a thing for me. Now, back then I was Magnus in name only. I hadn't truly become Magnus, the 70s style hairy chested love god that so many of you are familiar with today. Back then. The simple notion of a fetching young lass clad in red Rockies declaring her affection for me was cause for alarm. Even panic. So, one might ask, what did Magnus say in reply? Unfortunately, we'll never know, because the powers that were at that junior high chose that moment to stage a fire drill. She and I got separated from one another during the ensuing pandemonium, and she was rather standoffish with me after that. (sighs) Alas, so tis. I'll always remember those pants, though. Hashtag, things Magnus misses. I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, they could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, Year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me to make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard.
welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. And right now, I'm working my way through a mini-series that's... Basically, it's dedicated to Brian Michael Bendis comics. And basically, the, I guess my intention in doing all of this is to point out the fact that, you know what, Brian Michael Bendis takes a lot of bullshit from people on the internet and on Facebook and whatnot, but the overwhelming majority of it is just completely unwarranted. And the purpose of this, uh, of this miniseries is actually to, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say prove that, but more that it's, it's basically designed to show you a couple of examples of what I think are great stories written by Brian Michael Bendis. So, pretty much it's that simple, really. Now, originally, I didn't really have a very good name for this, for this miniseries, right? So, what I did was, I turned to you guys, my loyal subjects. Basically, I posted on the Facebook page for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, basically posted on there my problem that I'm going through with all of this. You know, guys, I'm really not able to think of a of a very good title for this miniseries. I mean, literally, the very best that I could think of is Bend It Like Bendis, and that's just, let's face it, that's not a very good title, especially for a miniseries like this. And so a bunch of suggestions were made, but the one that I liked the most was actually submitted uh, by my old friend, uh, P.Q. Ribber of the Overnightscape, and what he suggested is The Tremendous Bendis Weekly. So that is going to be the title of this miniseries henceforth. You can call this Tremendous Bendis Weekly. So anyway, basically what I'm going to be talking about in this week's installment is Daredevil Volume 2. This is a, a story called Underboss. And basically in it, this story, it, it, it goes from, let's see, it starts in Daredevil Volume 2, number, number 26, and then goes right on through to number 31. So uh, Daredevil number 26 to number 31, again, it's a story called Underboss. And this is basically Brian Michael Bendis' debut on Daredevil. Now, as I say, Brian Michael Bendis takes a lot of bullshit from people online, you know, and he tends to get made fun of for his writing style. And admittedly, you know, I will be the first to admit that Brian Michael Bendis isn't exactly... Well, Bendis isn't necessarily appropriate for every single character. His move seems to be writing in a similar... Basically, a lot of his characters in a very similar type of way. And his approach to character it's it's really not appropriate for every character so you know on the one hand I happen to think he can write a, just a fucking incredible daredevil story but those same sensibilities and philosophies and values wouldn't necessarily work for Captain America or for Superman or, or just whoever you know He's, his style is not appropriate for everything. So I'm not trying to sit here and argue that everything the man writes is gold. Trust me, I'd never make that argument. That having been said, though, he really does take 
what I think is an, uh, kind of an, uh, uh, an unnecessary beating online. And so, really, the purpose of this miniseries is to, I guess, push back on that a little bit. So, anyway. Now, Daredevil 26 was not only the debut of Bendis on writing, but it's also the debut of Alex Maleev on, on uh, Pencils. So, there's a little bit of a double whammy in as much as you could fairly say that Daredevil Volume 2 is being taken in a not just in a, in a different direction on a literary basis, it's being taken in a different direction on an artistic basis. So, anyway, all of this is a kind of long way of saying uh, that this is really the uh, introduction to the synopsis for Daredevil number 26, the synopsis of which is as follows. Today, Kingpin's new man and a group of his lieutenants stab him Julius Caesar style and leave him for dead. One week ago, Matt and Foggy are leaving court when Nitro shows up and tries to blast Murdoch. To be continued. Yes, that truly is the summary. It, it, again, this is Brian Michael Bendis, so it really doesn't take all that long to, to summarize the story. Now, the way it's been explained to me, and I think I've mentioned this a couple of times already, but the way that it's, that it's been explained to me, basically what, Brent, what, what Bendis does is he writes three, maybe four pages of dialogue and gives that to the artist and says, I need you to draw scenes that include all of this dialogue. Other than that, draw whatever the fuck you want. I don't care. And so it's kind of like Marvel method on steroids. Again, I don't know this from firsthand experience. This is just something that I've heard. And fucking, I've heard it often enough now that I kind of tend to believe it. So, and I think that would tend to explain a lot of Bendis's reputation. You know, this, this style of writing that he has that I guess the maybe the, the nicest way to say it is that it's like not all that much seems to happen in a Brian My- Michael Bendis issue. Now, a lot may happen in a given story, but a particular issue, eh, not so much, you know, or at least not necessarily, right? So, and you know what? Whatever, that's fine. It's just, it's, it's a stylistic, I don't know, signature of Bendis. And look, if you're not into that, you're not into that. There's really nothing logical or intellectual that I can say that will change your mind. Stuff like that really does come down to stylistic preference. And if you're just not into it, there's really nothing anyone, nothing that anyone can say that's going to change your mind. So, you know, if nothing else, I don't want you to feel like you're being called out. Like I say, the purpose of, the, of all of this is basically to, to explain, number one, these are good uh, comics. Number two... These are good Bendis comics, so whatever you want to do with that. So, but as I say, uh, not a whole lot seems to happen. Certainly in this issue, you basically have what amounts to really two things happening, and that is the Kingpin getting stabbed into oblivion in the present day, the here and now, and then a week ago, Daredevil going after Nitro. So that's really the you know the main thing. But there is a kind of a nice little moment where. Uh, he finally does catch up with uh, Nitro and basically wrestles him to the ground. And 
in the moment, you know, what, you know, basically what Daredevil is saying here is who are you? Who sent you? Tell me, or I swear to God, you die right now, you know? And that's what Daredevil's saying there. And in the moment, you know, it's kind of hard to basically not to take that seriously. I mean, this is a, this is a Daredevil that it, at the, at the exact instant that all this is happening, who's to say that he's not ready, willing, and able to kill a motherfucker, right? So, I don't know. I, I just, I really like this approach to, to Daredevil. I, I, to me, this is just extremely enjoyable. But I guess on an, art, on an artistic basis, I usually find Alex Maleev to be a little bit hit and miss, you know, he can draw an establishing shot like nobody's business, or he can draw these pseudo glory shots of Daredevil swinging around town. And somehow even the daytime is just totally shadowy. And I really dig that. I like that, uh, that type of approach to the art. And I think it actually really suits Daredevil pretty well. So, uh, he can draw a lot of things really well, but I don't think Alex Maleev is necessarily the go-to guy for fight scenes. And I'm trying to be nice as I say that, but, you know, he can, uh, he's got a, an extremely powerful command of, of architecture, of lighting, shadow, anatomy, physiology, proportion, perspective, all of that stuff. He just doesn't draw the most engaging fight scenes in the whole world. And so because of that, you know, there are, are plenty of instances where Daredevil looks a little bit off balance, or I know for a fact that when you're in a fight, you don't hold your fist that way. It's just, that's not the way that it's done. I know that it that's how it's done in movies, but in a real fight, you don't hold your fist the way that Daredevil holds him here. So anyway, I'm not saying this to shit all over Alex Milley because I really do appreciate his work. I'm just saying that there are certain things that he does extremely well. And there are certain other things that he just doesn't really do all that well at all. And no artist out there is perfect and does everything exactly perfectly. Unless his name is George Perez, that is. But that's not really the point. The point is, Alex Maleev, he does a lot of things incredibly well. And there are maybe one or two things he doesn't do all that well, but it's fine, you know? So one of the things, though, that I really dig about this issue is actually the last three panels on the last page. Basically, you've got Daredevil, he's beating the shit out of Nitro, and in the background space, <clears throat> what you see is uh, just text. It says helicopter, uh, newscopter, Herman's Hermits, skin scrape, uh, uh, cracking, scraping, Beastie Boys, and it's basically what you're supposed to infer from all of this, I think, is this is all the shit that's basically clouding Daredevil's mind right now. You know, the he can hear somebody blasting uh, Herman's Hermits across town. He can hear the news helicopter uh, hovering right above him. Um, he can feel or hear, I guess, uh, Nitro's skin scraping against the fence and, and the pavement. And he can taste the blood in his own mouth. He can smell somebody's body odor. I mean, it's basically his senses are completely out of fucking control right now. And he's being overwhelmed by all of this. And basically what we're supposed to interpret from all of this is that Daredevil is, I don't want to go so far as to say unhinged, but he's, he's definitely, yeah, he's, he's overwhelmed with 
his senses right now, uh, what he can smell, what he can taste, what he can hear, what he can feel. All that stuff is, the insanity of it is starting to overwhelm him. Because when you think about it, New York is a pretty loud, smelly place, shall we say. And if your senses are as uh, sensitive as daredevils, I could see that just overwhelming you. And like, I don't know about anybody else, but when I get a severe enough headache, I get very cranky, shall we say. And I've been known to just kind of pop off at people and, you know, say things that honestly are kind of dick things to say, but you know what? I said them, you know, I'll own it. But I, I, I pretty much have to blame it on the fact that, yeah, I had a roaring headache at the time. And that is, that's basically the way that I'm sort of approaching, you know, Daredevil kind of losing it here on the last page where the insanity of New York is finally getting to him, you know, and it's only because of the explosions that have gone off in his face twice now. So anyway, and that's a nice little segue into Underboss Part 2, which is Daredevil number 27. One week ago, a rookie cop tries to bust Daredevil for assaulting Nitro while he's trying to find out who sent Nitro after him. Daredevil confronts the Kingpin about the situation later on, and Fisk denies that he had anything to do with it. Three weeks ago, Sammy Silky moves into town and starts making friends with the Kingpin's boys. Today, Ben Urich gets a call letting him know that the Kingpin is dead. To be continued. Now, again, this is a... There's just not a whole lot of shit that happens on a lot of... And a lot of Bendis issues, but definitely this issue is busier than than the last one. I mean, surely we can all agree upon that, right? But there's this nice little moment where you have these two beat cops who are basically hanging around reading People magazine in their squad car. And one of them, the rookie, basically says, look, how do you know when you've met say, Spider-Man, or Thor, or Captain America, or fucking anybody, right? How do you know that's really them? I mean, anyone can put on a Spider-Man outfit and wear the mask and jump around like an idiot. How do you know that you're, that you're actually talking to the real guy? And the more seasoned cop says, trust me, you'll know the real deal when you see him. And this is just one of those neat little moments of I guess universe building and character development, or maybe not character development, I don't know, universe development, where you kind of got to figure, you know what, cops probably have conversations like that all the fucking time, you know, because they live in a world where superheroes and uh, superpowered beings, these guys running around in capes and masks and shit, that's just part of the day-to-day reality of the Marvel universe. And so I think a very logical question to ask is just how the hell would you know? I mean, cause all you've really got is their word that they are who they say they are. And the more seasoned police officer basically says, look, you'll know it when you meet the real guy. If you're, if you meet some crank, you'll know, you'll be able to tell the difference. You'll know. And that actually gets proven just a couple of pages later where the rookie opens fire on Daredevil, who dodges the bullet, and then 
the more seasoned cop basically is trying to pull the rookie off of Daredevil. And Daredevil, I guess, figures, you know what? This is a pretty good time for me to leave. But the man you just shot is a human bomb of some kind. And he just went off in front of the courthouse. Call the CD, the CTC unit to take care of him. Then get over to the courthouse. And if you ever open fire in public again, cop or no cop. And he just lets it hang after that. And so the more seasoned cop says to the rookie, he says, shut up, Cherry, and listen good. Open your eyes. That man, that man that you just pulled your gun on is the only thing, the only thing keeping this city from turning into a living hell on earth. And in a city where you've got Dr. Octopus running around, you've got Nitro, you got fucking, you got Jigsaw, you know, all of these other heavy hitter supervillains. Yeah, you know what? Daredevil and his ilk, they probably are the only thing uh, that, that are keeping, keeping order in New York, shall we say. You know, that's an easy thing to buy into. So anyway, again, it's just a nice little moment of universe building, you know, universe, universe development, I guess. And I don't know, that works for me. Now, later, there's a moment where Daredevil has it out with Kingpin in a parking garage. And at that moment, Kingpin is blind. So when Daredevil points to, I don't know if this guy's name is Silk or Silky. What I've always done is, I mean, when I've read it, I've interpreted it as as silky but i don't know if that's actually how you pronounce the fucker's name but whatever he's a fictional character so i guess it doesn't matter he says daredevil says who is that i don't recognize him and kingpin says that he can't see who daredevil is pointing to he can't really see anything so anyway silky basically wanders out and talks shit so daredevil uh basically smashes him in the chin with his with his billy club and, you know, hits the road. Turns out that Kingpin really is clean on this, based on his his heartbeat and whatnot. And, again, this is... This is basically more of Alex Maleev kind of... I don't want to say setting himself up as alpha male in the room when it comes to artists, but he is introducing a completely new visual style to Daredevil, to the absolute best extent of my knowledge, which isn't absolute, it's not definitive by any means, but I'd like to think that I've I've read a fair number of Daredevil comics over the years, and to the best extent of my knowledge, there's never really been an artist quite like Maliev on Daredevil before. So every single page is, it's basically, it's a new treat. You know, now, yes, again, Maliev doesn't exactly do the world's most dynamic fight scenes or anything like that. But, you know, fuck it. You can't have everything. So, anyway, the point is, I just, I really dig this issue. I really dig this art. And I think, once again, Bendis is bringing home the bacon with all of his uh, contributions to this issue. And, I don't know, just plays for me. So, the issue ends, rather abruptly, with Ben Urich getting a call at the Daily Bugle uh, news office, basically, to let him know that Kingpin is dead. And that is about as good a segue into the summary for, uh, uh, this is a Daredevil, ah, number 28. 
And the summary is basically as follows. Assassins are gunning for Daredevil and he can't figure out why. To be continued. No shit. I'm 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 dead serious. That really is all this issue is really about. Basically This 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 comic is it's part of the Nuff Said event that was going on at the time where it's an all or mostly silent uh, story, right? The story is basically conv- uh, conveyed through visuals, right? And in fact, there's a little explanatory note at the, uh, at the back of the issue that says, Nuff said, we dared them. That's right. Almost a year ago, Marvel Prez Bill Jemis and EIC Joe Casada hatched a test for the Mighty Marvel Maestros. Since you are the best artists and writers in the biz, we challenge you to tell a story using visuals only. After all, if a picture's worth a thousand words, then a comic book filled with images only would be worth, well, more words than the collector could count. And if you think creating a story with no words is half the work, think again, true believer. The writer has to craft a story using no dialogue or caption boxes to communicate information. And pencilers have to, exp- have to make sure their story is so clear that text isn't needed to explain what's going on. Just to show you how our mighty Marvel maestros met the challenge, and to give you a unique peek behind the curtain, here's the plot to the very story you just read. Just compare it to the art and you'll see how the dare was done. After that, you know, we basically get the plot of this of of this comic and it honestly this is kind of dry to read you know at least to read out loud so i think we can skip that but you know basically uh you what you do you know what you've got here is matt murdoch he's basically hanging around the he's he's basically hanging around what looks like his law office and he just starts thinking back on things you know there's a there's a a panel of him standing in front of a big crucifix, cradling uh, Karen Page while she bleeds out. There's another panel of Bullseye just standing around, musing over the fact that, yes, he is in fact Bullseye. Then there's a uh, picture of Elektra just standing around in the streets of New York. Another panel with Bullseye, another one with Karen Page, another one with uh, Matt cradling Elektra as she bleeds out, so on and so on, right? And... As he as all that's happening, he wanders over to a window and he feels one of those little laser dots from a from a rifle scope on his forehead, and he realizes that somebody's about to shoot him. So Daredevil swoops into action, beats the hell out of uh, the would-be assassin, destroys the gun, and after that the fight's on. The assassin pulls out two handguns, fires those, pulls out a knife. Daredevil kicks it out of his hand. You know, just fucking blah, blah, blah. I mean, the story goes on and on and on, right? Um, You know, what's happening here. And what ultimately comes out is that Matt finds a note with his... uh, First, what he finds is a picture of himself. And then he finds a a note that basically says, Matt Murdock, New York City, open bounty, call if interested. And he realizes this isn't just random street crime. This is an actual organized hit, Right? looks over and he detects on the rooftop another assassin, this one holding a boomerang. And 
Daredevil pursues him. Boomerang guy throws his boomerang. And Matt tries to, or Daredevil, I should say, tries getting answers in all of this, but none are forthcoming. Meanwhile, as all of that's going on, Bullseye wanders by in the crowd and is watching the whole thing. Clearly, he's in town, I would assume, to take a shot at Matt Murdock himself. Daredevil feels Bullseye's presence, looks around for him, can't find him, and then that's pretty much where the issue ends. So, I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, it's a little bit hard to... It's a little hard to to easily summarize a uh, a story like this that has pretty much no text whatsoever. So, I don't know. I, on the other hand, though, I mean, because... God, this is, just, this is, words are failing me here. Basically, what I'm saying is this is not an easy issue to summarize precisely because of the fact that it's a completely silent issue. So all you can really do is just kind of describe what happens on the pages, but really that's about it. And as you can see, even a little half-ass uh, synopsis that I just now threw together, just kind of pulled it out of my ass, even that, it doesn't really do justice to the story. And let's face it, Alex Maleev's ability to tell a story entirely visually, no text, no nothing, right? So, I don't know. I mean, really enjoyable story, but it's kind of hard to talk too much about the writing because, yes, there is a plot here, but it has to be done in such a way that it doesn't necessarily... Fuck it, whatever. I'm rambling. Anyway, on to Daredevil number 29. This is Underboss Part 4, synopsis of which is as follows. Today, Vanessa Fisk finds out her husband has been stabbed and is in uh, critical condition, but not killed, as reports have claimed. Three months ago, Sammy joins the Kingpin's organization and asks Murdoch to be killed as a favor to his father. Kingpin forcefully declines. Two days ago, Daredevil's told that the Kingpin has put, a, has put the hit on him, and Wilson realizes that someone in his organization defied his orders about not doing that. Two months ago, Sammy regales the Kingpin's men with the story of a man who waited patiently until he got a shot and then took it. Anyway, to get into the issue properly, though, um, one of the things that... There's just a really powerful little moment... Uh, that Maleev uses when uh, Vanessa Fisk finds out about what's going on with Kingpin. It's basically, let's see, this is one, two, three, this is four panels, and it's the same basic picture of uh, Vanessa in every single one of them. She's got the same sort of blank face. In the first panel, the background is her little beach getaway here, or whatever this is. Actually, it's a house on the lake, now that I look at it, so fuck it, whatever. The background here in the first panel is her house on the lake, the second panel is her, um, she's waiting at an airport for her plane. The third panel is her on the plane. The fourth panel is her standing in the home of Kingpin's personal physician, right? And the entire time, her expression never changes. And it's just a very powerful and very effective way of communicating the passage of time and Vanessa moving around, getting to 
uh, the Kingpin's bedside. So I just really like that. I, I, look, it's not like Alex Maleev invented that. But at the same time, he, he still uses it very effectively here. So anyway, the next thing, uh, this is a moment where Silky and Kingpin, they meet and they have this sort of mobster type of conversation. And it comes out that Matt Murdock is basically prosecuting a case against uh, Sammy Silky's father's company, right? Uh, or at least he's got a controlling interest, but, you know, whatever. Anyway, same difference, really. So that was the case that Matt Murdock was prosecuting at the beginning of the first uh, in the first part of uh, Underboss. And that's really the reason for Nitro ever being sent after him in the first place. So Silky requests the hit and Kingpin basically says, as at first he's rather polite about it. He says, no, Murdoch is not to be touched. And Silky says, hey, my father is asking you for a favor. So Kingpin basically loses it right there, and he says, I suggest you learn to mind your place. You're here as a courtesy to an old friend. Remember that. Life isn't full of second chances. It's a rare thing to find yourself with the one you've been given here. Because if you plan on making a mess of things here, like you did in Chicago, I think you will find that patience and understanding are not personality traits your father and I share. And right there, I, of course, they don't number the goddamn pages, but this is in the third panel on whatever page that Kingpin is saying this. It looks like he actually smacks Silky upside the head as he's saying all of this stuff. And Silky looks appropriately scandalized. So anyway, Kingpin says, and if I say no one touches the lawyer, no one touches the lawyer. So we can already see, you know, as if it was necessary. I mean, we've got a pretty good idea of, I guess, the fact that Silky is running, uh, running operations behind uh, the Kingpin's back. But at least what this does is, I guess, the importance of this scene is to let us know, number one, the hit on Murdoch outside of the uh, 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 outside of the uh, courthouse that was done I guess using the kingpin's resources but not with the kingpin's blessing and probably this is actually what ended up getting uh, a kingpin almost uh, assassinated by his own men so anyway <sighs> I don't know. I just, I really, throughout this story, what, what Bendis is doing is basically taking us a little bit into the heart of the beast. We're basically seeing, um, in very clear terms, the way that, the way that the, uh, the Kingpin's organization runs. And it's basically, if you defy the Kingpin, it's your ass. And it doesn't matter who your father is or, 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 or what kind of power you think you have. It's still going to be your ass. Now, later on, there's actually a meeting between uh, uh, Kingpin and Daredevil. 
And Daredevil basically says, you know, it's funny, considering all we've been through, but I actually considered you an honorable man. You told me that you didn't have a bounty on my head. Now I find out that you do. And Kingpin denies it, so Daredevil says, then I guess one of your men is speaking for you without your say. And Daredevil then says again, I'm not the only only blind man looking down the barrel of a gun. And Kingpin says, maybe we can help each other once again. But Daredevil's already gone by that point. So, I don't know. I mean, when you think about it, the relationship between Kingpin and Daredevil is pretty unique in, in the world of comics. That it's rare for a... It's rare for a superhero to kind of have detente with one of his villains. I mean, usually what you have is a situation where it's very big and powerful, operatic, and the the superhero and the supervillain, they're at each other's throats, and it's going to be winner take all. And Daredevil is the first comic that at least I remember seeing where you kind of have a sort of hands-off agreement between superhero and supervillain. You don't fuck with me, and I won't fuck with you. You know, now we, we both have to abide by certain rules, but otherwise we'll leave each other alone. And I think uh, the Flash TV show is using that, that same type of concept to a very powerful effect. It did, anyway. Uh, there was a little bit of, I wouldn't say detente, but there was, shall we say, an arrangement between between the Flash and Captain Cold, where as long as Captain Cold doesn't kill anybody, the Flash isn't going to take him out. And in exchange for not being taken out, Captain Cold isn't going to tell anybody the Flash's secret identity. And I don't know. I just find that to be a very... That's just a really cool way of setting up a rivalry between a superhero and a supervillain, they can't go after each other. Look, if Wilson Fisk makes uh, makes a move, like really makes a move against against uh, Daredevil, ultimately Daredevil can call in Shield anytime he wants. He can bring the fucking Avengers down on the Kingpin's entire operation. Now, Kingpin might be powerful. He might have a lot of influence in, in, in that city. S.H.I.E.L.D. is not for sale. The Avengers are not for sale. They'll fucking destroy you. That having been said, though, Kingpin still has a trump card. If he doesn't like the way things are going between him and Daredevil, all he has to do is call one of his friends in the media and say, hey, Matt Murdock is Daredevil. And it doesn't matter if there's any proof. It doesn't matter if uh, anyone, it doesn't matter. Basically, Matt is going to be, at least in the short term, less effective if it's commonly understood that he is Daredevil. So anyway, I kind of like, what I'm saying is, I kind of like this sort of detente that exists between between uh, Kingpin and Daredevil. This is just a really cool, very original and very I just think 
interesting, fascinating way of setting up a rivalry between a superhero and a supervillain. It, it, it just plays for me. So, I don't know. Anyway, so I think that's pretty much it for the, uh, that's pretty much it for uh, Daredevil number 29. And that is a pretty good little segue into the summary for Daredevil number 30, which is Underboss Part 5. Richard Fisk and Sammy Silk attack the Kingpin. To be continued. And honestly, that's pretty much it. I mean, there's, I guess, there's a little bit of texture and whatnot to this issue that the synopsis sort of overlooks. But... Basically, it's not that much more complicated than this. And I think the real catalyst for all of this, it actually comes, uh, the little caption here says, two months ago, Fisk Towers, Wilson Fisk's office, outer chamber. And you've got Sammy Silk saying, Matt Murdock is daredevil. And obviously this is, this is not, basically this is not what Silky was expecting to hear and it is commonly known, I guess in the upper echelons of the uh, Kingpin organization. But Silky was not on, he was not privy to this information until this moment. But basically the rationale that he's given is they're good soldiers, Sammy. They're not going to acknowledge, they're not even, they're not going to, to even acknowledge you on this particular subject. Daredevil is not their business, and it's not your business. But you asked why my father won't let you near Murdoch, and now you know. And... Basically, Silky's point on all this is... is he say, in fact, he actually even says, do you know what my dad would do? What the other families would do if they found this out? And this is basically a good little reminder that this was being kept secret for a reason. And Richard really should have kept his fucking mouth shut about this because this is ultimately what caused all of the trouble for his father. So anyway, I don't know. That's... This is really where everything else starts. Everything that happens with the uh, everything that happens with the attempted assassination of the kingpin basically stems from the fact that Richard Fish shot his fucking mouth off to the wrong guy. Basically, told the wrong person the secret that uh, that uh, Fisk has been sitting on, and so after all of this. I don't know. So that is, again, it's an extremely, that's just an extremely logical way to construct the story and the, and, and goings on with, with, uh, the Kingpin. This is, I'm, look, I mean, I, I, I don't want to gush, but it almost, it just kind of feels like words aren't really doing justice to how much I fucking respect Bendis for, seeing such an obvious story 
in in the simple fact, the the long established fact that Kingpin knows Daredevil's secret identity, and the fact that he's done basically nothing with that over the years, notwithstanding the just incredible amount of shit that Murdoch could call down on Kingpin anytime he felt like it. That's not going to cut it with the other uh, with the other families. If you have information like that, fuck you for not using it. You know they'll kill you, and I very much find that easy to believe. So that is basically how all of Kingpin's men ended up ever taking uh, uh, taking sides against him. Sammy Silky made a deal with all of them to free them from the kingpin, and in exchange, what they have to do is kill the kingpin, and then they've got to kill Murdoch. So, that's pretty much that. The issue pretty much ends, though, with Vanessa Fisk saying, this nightmare has to be answered for. I'm not leaving town until we settle all family business on this. Now, excuse me while I open up my Coke here and get a couple of sips. I'm sorry, it's just, it's all this, it's all this talking. I'm also getting a drag off of my, uh, my e-cig here, so just one moment. So, Daredevil, number 31, Underboss, part 6. Believing the kingpin to be dead, Sammy Silky, Richard Fisk, and others raise their glasses in victory. Meanwhile, Vanessa Fisk has returned from Switzerland, and she has some cleaning up to do. Under her orders, the mutineers that betrayed the kingpin are all killed, and she confronts her son, Richard, whom she shoots dead. Silky, who was the only survivor from the attacks, wants to get into protective custody by the FBI, but when they refuse to protect him unless he exposes his father's illegal operations... Silky's able to offer them the next best thing and tells them what Richard told him, which is to say that the blind attorney, Matt Murdock, is in fact the superhero Daredevil. The end. At least of this story. Anyway, basically this is a little bit more of a, of a mechanical issue. Uh, the fact is, Bendis has spent the past couple of issues just... I don't want to say playing around and wasting time. He's definitely gotten balls deep in the this sort of mob underworld that he's setting up here. But the simple fact of the matter is, you know, this is just about long enough for a trade paperback, which means it's just about time for the story to come to an end. And so uh, what we have is a, I would say it's a fairly conventional mafia revenge type of thing where the... The mafia thugs that attempted to kill Kingpin to begin with, they're all, they're all basically wiped out in, in their own ways. And one of the things, though, that just kind of punches you right in the balls whenever, whenever you read this is Vanessa murdering Richard. You know, she murders her own son. Now, throughout... Daredevil, it's, as a comic book, I mean, you know, one of the things that doesn't get all that much play is Vanessa is, in her own right, 
incredibly fucking ruthless and extremely loyal to her husband. And even if her own son takes sides against the family, against the kingpin, that's it. Curtains. And there's a certain... I don't know. That's... Kingpin is without a doubt the 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 truly evil I don't know villain of this piece. There's no there's no question there, but we err if we don't at least acknowledge the fact that Vanessa Fisk is at least as ruthless as as uh, Kingpin is. So anyway, after that we get a sort of Godfather style uh, montage of all of the Kingpin's former deputies, lieutenants, capos, whatever you want to call them, all of them being uh, systematically taken out. Some hookers, or I guess hookers in disguise, uh, strangle one of them. Another one gets dropped off a rooftop. Another one gets perforated while he's on the toilet taking a dump. Another one gets shot in the back of the head while he's eating uh, spaghetti. And even Sammy Silky's uh, girlfriend ends up getting blown away uh, in a hail of gunfire that was actually intended for him. And he narrowly escapes, but escape he does. And manages to get into police custody. Well, not, sorry, not police custody. FBI custody. Um, in exchange for uh, protection, he's willing to tell him just about anything, you know? And he's not going to give up his father, but he does give up Matt Murdock as Daredevil. And that's basically the end of this story. Now, I went through a Daredevil reading project. I want to say it was... Shit. Um, 2007, 2008, something like that. There's always been something about Daredevil that's interested me, you know? And... So I, one day I just decided, you know what, fuck it. I'm going to read a shitload of Daredevil comics. And so I decided to read Daredevil Volume 2. Everything that had been released up to that time. And I got to tell you, you know, it starts off, I think, pretty well. You know, you got that Kevin Smith uh, story, the uh, Guardian Devil story uh, going. And then I think uh, Smith also wrote... Uh, the, the parts of a whole uh, storyline. This was, uh, let me flip back to, this is Daredevil numbers uh, 9 through 15. I want to say Kevin Smith wrote those two. He wrote those issues too, maybe. Maybe not. Fuck if I know. Actually, you know what, now that I think about it, I think that was actually David Mack. Now that I think, whatever, fucking David Mack, Kevin Smith, you know, whoever it was. Um... I'm just going to come right out and say it. After Kevin Smith uh, finished up Guardian Devil, I don't want to go so far as to say that the title just kind of floundered, because I don't think it did. But I don't think the subsequent stories were quite as powerful as Guardian Devil. Not until we get to Underboss. And, you know, between, between Guardian Devil... And, and uh, Underboss. Like I say, I mean, these are good stories. They're fairly entertaining, I guess. But I don't really feel like 
this series really had very much of a an identity let us say you know i don't really i don't think that there was any single thing about daredevil volume 2 that it's not that it didn't set itself apart from volume 1 i don't think it set itself enough apart from volume 1 after kevin smith left the book so that lasted, in my opinion, until Brian Michael Bendis came on the book, and he he changed, I guess, the literary vocabulary of of Daredevil and just the style the, the style of Daredevil comics uh, and stories that were coming out. Alex Maleev he took Daredevil into completely new visual territory, and to me, this is just very hard-boiled crime fiction. And it happens to have a superhero in it, but it's still very much crime fiction. And the natural comparison that most people would want to make is to the Frank Miller run on Daredevil, where he, by his own admission, did everything in his power to make this into a very hard-boiled crime fiction type of comic. And among a lot of fans... The Frank Miller run on Daredevil is basically considered to be the best. Frank Miller is top dog to a lot of people, but not to me. I really do put the the uh, uh, Brian Michael Brian Michael Bendis run. I actually put that ahead. That and uh, Ed Brubaker. I put uh, Brian Michael Bendis and Ed Brubaker both actually pretty far ahead of of uh, Frank Miller. I mean, I, I, on the one hand, you can't really ignore the Frank Miller influence that, uh, that, uh, Bendis and God knows Brubaker, uh, brought to the series. You, you can't overlook that. But on the other hand, they took this character that once, once Frank Miller left Daredevil, not really all that much, happened with him you know it it was almost like daredevil was cryogenically frozen and we were all just waiting for frank miller to come back and write some more daredevil stories and that just never really happened and i the way it the way it goes in my mind i don't know this to be true but the way it goes in my mind is bendis basically decided I'm going to continue Frank Miller's story. And then Ed Brubaker came on and said, I'm going to continue Bendis's story. And ever since then, Daredevil has had a very clear trajectory. He's he's had a, a direction. He's never been just kind of lost and floundering. Like, I've read some Daredevil comics from the 90s, and I'm not trying to insult them or anything, but, you know, for as good as some of those stories are, I got to tell you, a decent number of Daredevil stories in the 90s, they're just kind of floundering, you know? And it's like the character was asking, who am I apart from Frank Miller? And it was really only with, I would say, Kevin Smith and then subsequently Brian Michael Bendis and then his successors that really took Daredevil in directions that I think Frank Miller hinted at but ultimately never explored himself. And the process continues to this day. I mean, Mark Wade's work on Daredevil, f- 
first fucking rate, you know? And when when Wade came on to Daredevil, he, ma- he made the conscious decision that says, I'm going to take this character in... It's going to follow the storylines and the creators that came before me, but I'm, you know, in terms of continuity, but I'm going to take the character into a, shall we say, overall lighter direction. And my point here is saying that, you know, yeah, you had this kind of weird interstitial period after uh, Kevin Smith left the book and Brian, uh, sorry, not Brian Michael Bendis, uh, David Mack was uh, writing where... I don't know that the book really had an identity. That's just my opinion. But apart from that one that one moment with David Mack, you know, ever since Kevin Smith wrote this character, pretty much, again, except for except for Mack, pretty much, this character has never been without an identity and a direction. And when you think about it, that's a pretty fucking new thing. For Daredevil, or it's a rare thing for Daredevil, and it's definitely unheard of for Daredevil to be one of the best, if not the best, comics that uh, Marvel is publishing right now, you know? And at this point, I mean, you know, and, and just in terms of consistency, I put Daredevil since, geez, what year was that now when Guardian Devil came out? Yes, uh, 1998. So ever since 1998, Daredevil has been one of the most interesting, if not the most interesting comic book that's uh, coming out from Marvel. And I put that type of consistency ahead of everything. You know, um, for my money, this is Daredevil par excellence. And it's in a strange kind of way. It's funny how Daredevil has only gotten better and better and better. I mean, Guardian Devil was awesome, and definitely the best Daredevil that had come along in a long time at that point. Then came Brian Michael Bendis, and that was better than Kevin Smith. And then along came Ed Brubaker, and then that was better than Bendis, and so on and so on and so on. And it's like Daredevil gets better and better and better all the time. And, you know, we're living in a, I think, a kind of a golden era where since ever since 1998, Daredevil has been the most interesting uh, character that Marvel's got going, and he's finally living up to the potential that he always had. It's not that Kevin Smith did something with Daredevil that totally revolutionized the character. He just took the pieces that were already there and did something awesome uh, with them. And then, same thing with Bendis. He did something awesome. And then Ed Brubaker did something awesome. On and on and on and on. And... I'm of the opinion that if you hang around in comics long enough and if, you know, you can just live long enough to see it happen, sooner or later, every single character is going to have his time in the sun. And, you know, we've seen it with Hal Jordan. We've seen it with Wally West. To varying degrees, I think we've seen it with Barry Allen. So on and so on and so on, right? And same thing is true for Daredevil, you know? And this is... I mean, look, I know I'm going to come back to... Uh, the Bendis run at some point, all right? I have no fucking idea when it's going to happen. I wish I did. It's not going to be anytime soon, I can tell you that. But this, the Bendis run on Daredevil is so fucking good that I know I'm going to revisit this at some point in the future, you know? Now, 
to be fair, there is another there is another podcast out there. Um, that's all about Daredevil. This is Dave's Daredevil podcast. It's it's hosted by J. David Weeder, but you can call him Dave. Now, before even recording this uh, th- this episode that you're hearing right now, I actually sent a message to uh, to Dave just to let him know that hey, I'm going to be doing this, and you know, I hope it's not going to be a problem, you know, with your show. And he sent me back a very kind and very gracious response, basically that says. I, meaning Dave, I don't have a monopoly on Daredevil, and neither does anybody else. So, you know, feel free to talk about it. And so, now, I did defer to Dave in as much as when this show, and I don't know if I've ever actually talked about this, but when this show first started, this this episode that you're hearing right now, you were actually going, I was actually going to record this back probably no later than the spring of uh, 2014, but uh, I had this huge Daredevil sort of miniseries all planned out. It was going to be a six-episode miniseries all planned out. It was going to talk about just a bunch of different stuff, and of which one was going to be Underboss. And for various reasons, it ended up not happening. The most obvious reason, though, was that it was around that time that I think J. David Weeder announced that he was going to be doing Daredevil, uh, the, this uh, uh, Dave's Daredevil podcast that he's doing right now. And so... I do remember whenever it was that show started, or at least when it was announced, that's really what killed that six-episode um, Daredevil miniseries that I was going to do. That's really what what killed it. So, but I mentioned this only to say that you know I did defer to him at least on that. I wanted him to kind of get his feet wet because there really wasn't a Daredevil podcast coming out at the time, and I didn't want. Basically, I didn't want anything getting in, in, in Dave's way. And if all I had to do was just kind of reorganize my schedule uh, a little bit, well, I was I was perfectly content to do that. So, and uh, I mentioned this to say that if you're not, if you like Daredevil, but you're not listening to Dave's Daredevil podcast, you're really missing out because every single episode of that show is a major fucking treat. So check it out. Satisfaction guaranteed. And as it goes for Underboss, check this out too. Again, satisfaction guaranteed. And like I say, I'm going to come back to the Bendis run on Daredevil at some point. I don't know when, but it is going to happen. And I'm going to pick up basically with the next storyline that begins in Daredevil number 32, but that's going to be in the far, far distant future. Now, as to next week, what I've got planned, and I don't know if this is actually how things are going to shake out, so just keep an eye out for that. But what I'm planning is to talk about Ultimate Fantastic Four numbers one through six. So uh, keep an ear out for that. But otherwise, I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. gonna do with all that junk all that junk inside your trunk i'm a get 
get, get, get you drunk. Get you love drunk off my hump. My hump, my hump. My hump, my hump. My hump, my hump. My hump, my hump. My lovely little lumps. Check it out. I drive these brothers crazy. I do it on the daily. They treat me really nicely. They buy me all these ice, Dolce and Gabbana, Fendi and Madonna, Karen, baby Sharon, all their money got me wearing fly. Whether I ain't asking, they say they love my ass in seven jeans. True religion. I say no, that they keep giving, so I keep taking. And no, I ain't taking. We can keep on dating. Now keep on demonstrating. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T R. E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O. T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S 
If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the 2 True Freaks at the same time. 2 True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search 2 True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number 2. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about 2 True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy.